Famously, the US Declaration of Independence declares, We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable, that all men are created equal and independent, that from that equal creation they derive rights inherent and inalienable, among which are the preservation of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. But in recent years, the idea that the government should just get out of the way and allow us to pursue happiness has morphed into the idea that the goal of government should be to make us happy, that happiness is a relevant policy goal. But while we all aim to be happy, is it really the, the role of government to promote happiness? Indeed, maybe happiness is not the most useful goal in life at all. The philosopher and author Piers Ben is producing a session at the Battle of Ideas this year titled A Trivial Pursuit, Is Happiness Good For You? And I'm delighted that he's joined me to talk about the themes that will be discussed. So Piers, let me start with an easy one. What is happiness? Hello, what is happiness? Well, unfortunately, it's not an easy one. I think I'd begin by distinguishing the question of uh, what happiness actually is in itself from the question of what people say makes them happy. So if you ask people what what happiness is, they might say casually, oh, happiness is a lovely holiday, happiness is the perfect relationship, happiness is being in the perfect career. So what they're saying there is they're describing the kind of things that make them happy. And of course, there's, people give different answers to that question. People have very different goals in life. So obviously it's not the case that the same thing makes people happy. But of course, the underlying question is what is happiness? That's much more tricky and complex. I think we can start by saying that, um, at least in ordinary cases, happiness is about something. So if I describe myself as happy this morning, you might naturally ask me, well, has anything particular good happened this morning? Am I happy about anything? I might tell you I've just had an unexpected cheque from the Inland Revenue. This occasionally does happen to me. Uh, I don't know why, but it does. Or I've just had a sort of a, a paper accepted in a journal, so I can say I'm happy about that. But, of course, that leaves open the possibility that I might at the same time be unhappy about something else. I might simultaneously be happy that A has happened, but unhappy that B has happened. So it's not a question of having one constant psychological state. It, it can, you, you can be simultaneously, if you like, happy and unhappy. But I do think at the same time people are also talking about that wild feeling of well-being, a sort of feeling of euphoria, a feeling of, let's say, contentment or freedom from anxiety. I think that comes into it as well. There seems to be these these other things that sound a bit like happiness yeah, that are, yeah. are different. For example, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, he describes how... Yeah, the population is mostly seems to be high on hallucinogens or engaging in some kind of creative sex act. Mm. And, that, that, and that's a kind of notion of happiness, as it were, where we're kind of blissed out. We're not really thinking about the world. We're just, we have this, as you say, this feeling yeah. of euphoria. Yes, yes. And then on the other hand, you have J.S. Mill saying, you know, better to be Socrates dissatisfied than a fool satisfied. So mm. you know, is enlightened misery preferable to that kind of blissed out contentment? Well, I think on the whole it is, but I don't want to say too much in favour of enlightened misery. I'd rather be enlightened than happy, and enlightened happiness, I think, is the thing to go for if possible. But you're talking really about a a familiar sort of point made in philosophical ethics, particularly when it comes to theories of the good which are based on happiness, like classical utilitarianism would be an obvious case. Bentham, in the 18th century, early 19th century, thought that the, um, the only good thing in itself was pleasure or happiness, and he ran those concepts together. Now, um, in the 1970s, um, Robert Nozick came up with a famous thought experiment. Or imagine some mad scientist connecting your brain to certain electrodes that will stimulate your brain to make you, to give you the experience of anything you wanted. So if you want the experience of being the world heavyweight champion, you can have that. If you want the experience of 
uh, being a famous concert pianist and getting lots of applause, you can have that. And Nosy's question is, well, would a sensible person prefer a real world in which those things happen to them or a faked world in which those things happen to them? In other words, is it just the experience you want or do you want the experience to be grounded in something? And the common sense answer, I suppose, that most people would adopt is that you want your experiences to be grounded in reality. You don't want to live in a fool's paradise, however happy you are in that fool's paradise. And I think that's roughly the point that Mill was making. You know, you, we can all think of people who are happy because they haven't thought very much about anything or because they can't think about anything, and we don't envy that state. So why would various writers, Richard Layard's possibly the most famous, mm. start mm. to see happiness as a policy mm. thing, something that... that government could pursue. I mean, is it even possible for government to make us happy? Well, I don't think it's possible. I think government can do certain things to make life better for people. I mean, the original proposal in around 2011, when David Cameron started talking about happiness as a policy goal, you, you'd tinker with people's lives in little ways. You'd, For example, you'd shorten the distance, the commuting distance between their work and their homes. How you do that, I have no idea. But that's the kind of idea, because the idea was, and there is some, I suppose there's some root in psych- rootedness in psychology about this, the experiments and so on, which suggests that little things make life quite a lot easier. So commuting distance or, um, oh, I don't know, um, having leisure centres in your area, I mean, it, whatever it is. So, yes, you can do certain things. But, of course, it's, it's absurd to think that the goal of government is to, can be to make people happy because people have different goals in life, as I said before. And also, I think the, the government wants to seem to be a bit trendy, to be hooking into if you like, the the culture of self-help and, um, and personal growth and stuff. The government wants to be seen as linking into that, just as Tony Blair wanted to be seen as connected with the hip things going on, with the arts and having Noel Gallagher in number 10, the gimmicks like that. And I think there's an element of that. Um, so I think, yes, obviously, you know, the government's goal should be to make people's lives better, and that is partly a subjective validation. So there's nothing wrong with it. But you can't have it as an overarching goal, as many commentators have said. I mean, for example, one notorious problem is the measure is the lack of measurability of happiness, and the fact that, I mean, Hammond's right to say it's not just a matter of GDP. Um, happiness is not just a matter of how much you earn, because there's plenty of work done to suggest that people's happiness doesn't correlate entirely with what they earn. You'd be above a certain income level, you don't just get happier the more you earn. That's all true, but you know what. Whether that means government to, to make people happy is a different question. Yeah, just because it does seem to me that there um, there is a potential here for the redefining happiness as whatever it could be measured, mm, mm. and then government making that a policy yeah. goal rather yeah. than making any sense as a real world goal, if you like. Yes, I think so. There's a rather good pamphlet on this by Jamie White, who's also been a speaker at the battle, called Quack Policy, which is an, an economist analysis of the problems. I mean, he's got it goes into a great deal of detail about the problem of this, so I recommend that. I think the the variability of what people count as happiness, what, uh, the different people's different ideas about what makes them happy, the fact that goals conflict mean that the the role of government can only be limited. But it's not a bad idea. You can pick on bits and pieces of experimental psychology, and there's quite a lot of work done in this, and some of it is evidence based about the little things that can increase well being. And you know, I'm nothing wrong with that. It just can't be a great goal. 
Yeah, I, I was thinking about it as well in relation to the sort of the modern era when we've, you know, we have an economy that's quite moribund and we have sort of quite a lot of green thinking around which says you know, we should kind of uh, reduce our expectations, lower our horizons about what kind of wealth we have. And I can see why mm. being content with our lot might be a, a theme within this that is um, very conducive to, uh, to some modern political thought, yeah. which... I will now neatly segue into a discussion of another session that you're speaking at, ah. um, which is, is the Pope a Catholic? Because um, <laughs> because yeah. Um, yeah. one of the things that seems that Pope Francis has, has mm. projected, if you like, is the idea of a more modest mm. papacy, an idea that he should live simply and that we should all live simply. I mean, what what do, do you think, first of all, that the Pope is a Catholic? And to what extent has he become popular with people who would yeah. normally not be very big fans of Catholicism. Well, I suppose there's fairly strong evidence that he is a Catholic. I mean, after all, he is the Pope, and he was elected in a fairly ordinary way, as far as I can work out, by a college of cardinals, no doubt after much prayer and reflection and discussion. So I think the evidence that he's a Catholic is strong. But what people mean by this is there's no doubt that he's attracted a certain amount of enmity within the Vatican, and among certain people, not all, who regard themselves as traditionalists. Now, why is this? My own take on this is that I'm not a Catholic myself, and I don't consider myself an expert, but I take an interest. And I think that there's really very little, if anything, he's said that is doctrinally unorthodox. I mean, when, when the, the guardianariat sees on little statements he makes, like he says to a gay person, I don't judge you, I don't judge you. I mean, what he said is entirely orthodox. I mean, it's just the, the St. Augustine's business about um, loving the sinner even though you might hate the sin. No departure whatsoever. And on things like contraception and same-sex marriage, the Pope is not going to depart from traditional doctrine. What he wants to do is make life more easier for people who are in difficulties caused by these doctrines. So, for example, he wants to speed up the process of annulment of marriages. Um, The Catholic Church accepts annulment in the sense that it it accepts that some marriages never were. Now, you don't want a lengthy process of years and years keeping people in limbo. So it's a commonsensical and compassionate move. So I think he's, there's nothing, he said nothing unorthodox. What he's done is ruffle feathers in the Vatican. People who insist on a lot of pompous robes and rituals and secrecy and so on. You know, he's blown, the, he's blown the dust away from them and they don't like it. So he's sort of, he's a reformist when it comes to governance and, uh, and the way people talk and, and, and bureaucracy and the Vatican Bank. But he said nothing doctrinally unorthodox. So going back to the, uh, the happiness session, which is a trivial pursuit, is happiness good for you? Uh, can you just tell me a little bit more about who's speaking and when, it, when it's happening? Yes, well, this is going to be a roundtable rumble, which means it's not going to be a, a particularly formal, structured debate, because I don't really know that the speakers necessarily differ on a great deal. I mean, they, they have different perspectives, I think, rather than different views. Um, we have um, a media monk. We have um, Abbot Christopher Jameson, who presented a series on TV a few years ago called The Monastery. Um, he'll be talking about the, the, the Benedictine life and, and the role of, I suppose, Christian asceticism in happiness. We have Professor Angie Hobbs from Sheffield. She's a professor of the public understanding of philosophy. She writes a great deal about Plato and Greek philosophy, and I imagine she'll take a, a, a platonic view of happiness. We've got Ashley Frawley, who is a lecturer in sociology at Swansea University, who's just written a book on the semiotics of happiness. And we have Claire Melford, who used to be um, a CEO in a sort of for-profit city firm, 
Then she um, had a sort of life change, went and grew mangoes in uh, Colombia or Panama, I think, did lots of things, worked for NGOs, and now has a rather more Buddhist take, having been in the city. So I hope there'll be a nice melting pot of different perspectives. And I don't know what they're going to say um, beyond guesswork. I hope that I'm going to weave them in and provide some food for thought. Well, I hope uh, our, our little chat has whetted people's appetites for, so. um, for for that particular session and hope they come out content at the end of it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Piers, yeah. Ben, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Podcast of Ideas. For more information about our podcasts and to subscribe to them, visit instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast. 